final push of the book of Isaiah. We're in the last two chapters of the book, chapters 65 and 66. These are the climax of the entire book, all the principles, all the precepts that the prophet has been teaching us throughout the book kind of reach their culmination in these last two chapters that are really full of prophecy, many of which involve the end times. Last time we saw verses 1 through 7 of chapter 65, where we read of God's condemnation of Israel for her rebellion and her sins against him. And we saw a prophecy about a nation. In the Hebrew, it's goy in the singular. A nation also, it can be translated as a people. God called a people who didn't know him, and God allowed a people to seek and find him who didn't seek him and who had never found him before. That's what's prophesied there at the beginning of chapter 65 in verse 1, that this new people, this Goy, would have intimacy with him. And then we looked at Romans chapter 10, because Romans chapter 10 gives us a look back at the Isaiah 65 passage. And so the apostle to the Gentiles, as he is referred to, The Apostle Paul, when he writes in Romans 10, he cites the passage that I just talked about, Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. And looking back, he cites that passage in support of his ministry, not to the Jews, but to church-age believers. And so what we learn by looking through the lens of Romans 10 is that the nation or the people that Isaiah is speaking of in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 1 is none other than the church itself. Now the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. And so when Isaiah writes it, he doesn't know. Isaiah receives the words from God. He writes the words from God, goy, people, nation. But he doesn't know. He doesn't fully understand it because as Paul taught, the mystery of the church meant that God concealed the reality of the church age from Old Testament people, from all the Old Testament people, including from Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and Moses, all of them. So the fascinating thing is that in a book that is written to Israel by a prophet of Israel, delivered through and from the God of Israel, we find ourselves mentioned. We find us prophesied in the book that is written to Israel through Isaiah. Fascinating, fascinating reality that a reality that was concealed from all the Old Testament writers including Isaiah and that is only revealed because we can put on our lenses of Romans 10 and see that Paul indicates that that Isaiah, although Isaiah didn't know it, was referring to the church age. A fascinating, beautiful promise for you and me that you matter to God immeasurably, that we matter to God. What we see in our passage today is both judgment and blessing. Let me read our passage, which is verses 8 through 16, and then we'll look at it in detail. Verse 8 begins like this, Thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. 
Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse from my chosen ones, to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from my sight. Here we get a great contrast. The prophet lays out a contrast. A stark contrast. Between those who submit to Yahweh. And those who reject Yahweh. Between, it's a contrast between the remnant. Those who seek him and the rebels who he will punish, those who reject him. Let's look at our passage in a bit more detail. Verse 8, Thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. Here we get to the part of God that we don't like to talk about. Here we get to the aspect of God that we don't talk about at parties that we don't talk about its social functions. This is the part of God that makes us cringe. This is the part of God that we feel squeamish about. It is the part of God that God judges, and He judges in a way that is utterly ruthless. His judgment is brutal and horrific. Ruthless means merciless. The way God will judge is, is, a, is a fashion of judgment that is void of mercy. Because when God's judgment comes, the time for offering mercy is over. And the time for flowing judgment begins. God judges those who reject Him, those who reject His mercy that He offers over and over. This is what the prophet has been teaching us throughout the book is that God is a God of judgment, and part of the reason that God is God is because He judges. That's what evidences, at least an aspect of of what evidences His deity, is that He is the judge. Isaiah 5, verse 16, the prophet said, But Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of the armies, will be exalted in judgment, and the Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. You see, the, the, the fact that God judges fairly, righteously, is part of what evidences His 
deity. Isaiah 33, verse 22, for Yahweh is our judge. The hour there is Israel. Israel is speaking that Yahweh is the judge of Israel, not just Israel, but of all the peoples. Isaiah 51, 5, my arms will judge the peoples. That's the Gentiles. He's the God, not the judge, who is God, not just of Israel, but of the Gentiles. And his judgment for the rebels, whether Gentile or Jewish, will be merciless, brutal, ruthless. That's what ruthless means. It means without mercy. They have rejected and mocked his mercy over and over. And so the time for mercy is concluded. Isaiah 66 verse 16, For Yahweh will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by Yahweh will be many. This is why the passage, verse 8, uses the word destroy twice. It's communicating something that is undeniable of the God who is. We get an image here of grapes, of God harvesting grapes. And ultimately, the harvest is for the wine press. But it's this image of good grapes and bad grapes, as you see on the screen, kind of diseased grapes intermingled on the cluster together. Some that are sweet and good, but others that are bad. The cluster is Israel, made up of the rebels and the righteous. The implication of verse 8 is that most of them are rebellious. God distinguishes, or if I could use the word, discriminates. There, I used it. I said it. He discriminates. Some discrimination is good. Not all discrimination is bad. Some is bad, but some is good. And so God discriminates between the good grapes and the bad grapes, distinguishes between the good grapes and the bad grapes. He destroys the bad grapes who are those who reject him, and he preserves, or if you prefer, saves the good grapes who are those who seek him. They're called his servants many times in our chapter here. Seven times the phrase my servants, Yahweh's servants will be used. It's a phrase that represents the remnant of Israel. The world has always been characterized by enormous, huge, huge disbelief in Israel and in the Gentiles. It was that way when Isaiah wrote, it's that way in the year 2022. But despite enormous disbelief, God always preserves a remnant. He does it for Israel, and he does it for the Gentiles. Paul speaks of Israel in Romans 11.1 1, when he says, I say then God has not rejected his people. He's talking about Israel. Has he? Meganoito in the Greek. No way, no how. May it never be. It's, you can't have a stronger negative. Meganoito in the Greek. It's like a super no way, no how. Paul says no way has God rejected Israel. For I too am an Israelite, the apostle to the Gentiles, a Jew, a, a Pharisee, a former Pharisee. Paul says, no, God has not rejected Israel. He always preserves a remnant. Keep reading in verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, this is a quote of Elijah speaking. They have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? Remember God's response to Elijah? It was Elijah. 
Elijah, stop feeling sorry for yourself. I'm in total control, and I preserve a remnant. Look at his response. Look at the divine response, God's response. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. There's our word. A remnant, according to God's grace, in every generation, including in the year 2022, including in Isaiah's generation, in every generation, God always preserves a remnant for Israel because God cannot lie. Because God does not renege on his promises, it's impossible for him to fail to perform his promises. And he made a promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And the promise is found in Genesis 1, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's in, in, in the third verse of Genesis 12. In other words, God will use Israel to bless the goyim, the nations, well, you've got to have an Israel to fulfill that promise. Because it doesn't say God will bless the nations with Israel and then he'll get rid of Israel and he'll use someone else when Israel does wrong. It's an unconditional promise, which means you've got, always have to have a remnant of Israel in order for God to be able to perform that promise. So always he preserves a remnant for Israel, but he also preserves a remnant for the Gentiles because that's baked into the promise. In you are the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that means we need to have families of the earth. We've got to have Gentiles who are believing. We need both parts of the equation. We need a remnant of Jews, and we need a remnant of Gentiles in every generation. In Isaiah's generation. And in the year 2022, look what Paul says about the remnant of Gentiles in Acts 15, verses 16 through 18. Actually, this is the Lord speaking. After these things, I will return. Christ is going to return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. This is a reference to the Lord's thousand-year reign. So that the rest of mankind, that's us, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It doesn't say all the Gentiles. It says all the Gentiles who are called by my name. All the Gentiles will not be saved. It's the Gentiles who call on the name of the God of Israel who will be saved. There's always a remnant. Always a remnant of Israel. Always a remnant of Gentiles. Sometimes the remnant's big. Sometimes the remnant's small. But there's always a remnant. Now the remnant that we're talking about in our passage today, beginning with verse 8 of chapter 65, is not the remnant of Gentiles. The Goy is mentioned in verse 1. The church age is mentioned although in a, in a veiled way, Isaiah doesn't know it. We don't know it until we look through the lens of Romans 10. The church is mentioned in verse 1, but in verse 8, we're not talking about Gentiles. That's not the remnant that is the reference here. The remnant that we're dealing with is a remnant of the Jewish people. What we're going to see in verse 8, or what we are seeing in verse 8, is not just judgment, but also deliverance. God is judging Israel, yet at the same time he's preserving the remnant. That's what's presented in verse 8. Then look at verse 9. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell, will dwell there. The word offspring is the Hebrew word tsare. Tsare. 
and, or excuse me, Sarah, Sarah. And Sarah is a very, very important word in the scripture. It can be translated seed. It can be translated as offspring. It really takes us back to the very first reference of the seed, the Genesis 3.15. There God issues the punishment for the first sin, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The you is the devil, is the serpent, who is the devil, and the woman. The woman is humanity, representing humanity, at least in this part of the statement. And between your seed and her seed, between the devil's seed, enmity between the devil's seed and between the woman's seed, he, which is the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, the devil, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see how many times Sarah is used here in Genesis 3.15? It's the same word that we find in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 9. You see, there's a perpetual conflict between the devil and humanity. That's the first statement there. I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman. There is a perpetual conflict, a perpetual war between the devil and humanity. And the sad, sad reality of humanity is most of us haven't the foggiest idea that we're engaged in a conflict. We're just zipping along, whistling Dixie, la, 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 just dumb and happy. No idea. We think we're here to frolic when we're here to fight. No idea that we're engaged in a conflict of the ages. But see, we, we, we learn all of this through the Hebrew word Sarah. There is perpetual conflict not just between the devil and humans, but between the offspring of the devil, the seed of the devil, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. What's the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent is that portion of humanity that is aligned with the devil through unbelief. In other words, it's unbelievers. It's the rebels. Jesus described the religious leaders of his day as the offspring of the devil. Right? John eight forty four, when he's speaking to the religious leaders, he says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. The devil orchestrated the deaths of the first two human beings, Adam and the woman, Adam and Eve. And so this word offspring or seed, Sarah in the Hebrew, is a very, very important word. It colors the destiny of humanity since the very beginning of the book, since Genesis 3. What's the seed of the woman? The Sarah of the woman is Messiah, and all those who align with Messiah by belief, by faith, in other words. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is born of a woman. He's born, Messiah is born of Mary. So he's the seed of the woman, and everyone who aligns themselves by faith is included in the phrase seed of the woman. Of course, Jesus is fully God, fully man. God promised that the seed of the woman would come through Abraham, right? In Genesis 3, you've got this broad statement that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the devil. The devil would crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman would crush the devil. In other words, the devil would 
kill temporarily Jesus. And then Jesus would be raised from the dead three days later. And so that real death, though temporary, was real. But because it was temporary, it's described as a, as a bruise on the heel, as an attack on the heel, as opposed to a, a hit on the head, a impact on the head, which is, if you're hunting, it's a headshot. Finished. Done. Because on the cross, Jesus engaged in checkmate, permanently defeated the devil. And the evidence of it was that the death that Jesus lived for three days was only three days, was temporary. And now he lives and reigns forever. This is all packed into this concept, Sarah. And so then when you get to the unfolding of Scripture, God comes along and says, that seed of the woman is not going to be African. He's not going to be Norwegian or Germanic or Chinese, Asian. He's going to be Semitic. He's going to come from a Semitic man. And so God promises to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17, Indeed I, the I there is Yahweh, I will greatly bless you, Abraham, and I will greatly multiply your Sarah, your seed, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your Sarah shall possess the gates of their enemies. And your seed, Sarah, all the nations of the earth in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is narrowing the promise about the seed of the woman and is telling Abraham that he will bless the nations through Abraham's seed. In other words, through Abraham, God would deliver the Messiah, the seed of the woman. To be more clear, the, the seed of the woman would be Jewish, would not be Arabic, would not run through the line of Ishmael, one of the sons of Abraham, would not run through the line of Esau, one of the grandsons of Abraham. It would run through the line of Isaac and then Jacob. Remember, God repeats the Abrahamic covenant. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. God makes the covenant to Abraham. Then he repeats it to his son Isaac. Then he repeats it again to his grandson Jacob. He doesn't give it to Esau, the brother of Jacob. Because Esau's an unbeliever. The promise flows through the descendants of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are believers. Because the promise, the Sarah, the seed, is through the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also through the pattern of faith. Following the pattern of faith of Father Abraham, remember Genesis 15, 6, Abraham Actually, then it's Abram believed in Yahweh and it was credited to his account as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. The point here is that the seed is through the genes. The seed of the woman flows through the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are also the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they trusted in the Lord. It's both. The seed of the woman includes both. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are physical descendants and spiritual descendants of them. Now, it's true that all believers, 
all believers are part of the seed of the woman because all believers are identified with Christ, especially church-age believers. All believers are part of the seed of the woman of all ages, of all dispensations, but the Jews are the context of our passage. And I say that the Jews are the context of our passage because verse 9 says that this group will inherit and dwell in the mountains of Judah, not in the hills of Texas, right? Not in the, the highlands of Scotland, but in the mountains of Judah, which includes Mount Zion. Verse 10 says that they will pasture their flocks, their livestock, in Sharon and in the valley of Achor. This is squarely within the land of Israel. Right? The plains of Sharon are these, these beautiful plains south of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is there. And then you have the plain of Sharon here, which is great for grazing livestock. And Achor, which is not on the map, is just kind of northwest of Jericho, another great plain for grazing and for pasturing livestock. God is saying, in peace and prosperity, Israel will possess the land. Again, the Abrahamic covenant is land, seed, and blessing. And so verse 9 is using different descriptions for those who will inherit the land. Three different descriptors. One, the offspring from Jacob, the Sarah of Jacob, the seed of Jacob. We already looked at that. The second one is my chosen ones, Yahweh's chosen ones. And the third is my servants, Yahweh's servants. We're going to see the phrase my chosen ones a few times. And so let me just spend a few minutes on that phrase so that you'll have a frame of reference every time you get to it as we go through this passage. Chosen ones is the Hebrew word bahir, and it comes from the Hebrew. It's, uh, bahir is an adjective, chosen ones. It comes from the Hebrew verb bahar, which means to choose. It means to select. In this context, my chosen ones is synonymous with the offspring from Jacob, with the Sarah of Jacob. God has chosen Israel to be the vehicle that he uses to bless all the nations. But not all of Israel is chosen. Only the portion of Israel that believes in Yahweh. Paul said it clearly in Romans 9.6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Only believing Israel is true Israel. And so in this context, the phrase chosen ones just like the phrase offspring from Jacob means those Jews who align themselves with the seed of the woman by faith. When you see the phrase chosen ones, some people approach phrases like this in the scripture and they get squeamish about it. They say, chosen? Whoa, chosen. We've got to somehow massage that phrase and do something with that phrase because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Don't do that. God uses words intentionally. And God moved his writers, the writers of his word, of his scripture, to communicate things so that we may learn about God. We are chosen but free. Chosen but free. I love that old book from Norm Geisler. We've talked about it before. It's been a while, a year or so. Chosen but free. And the reason I say that is because in the same verse, 
where we see chosen ones, we also see the freedom of the chosen ones. Look at the end of verse 10. My people who seek me. My people make a decision either to seek me or not to seek me. They choose by their own free will. And so chosen ones are the ones who use their free will to seek me. Well, which is it? Are we chosen? Does he choose us? Or do we use our free will to seek him? Yes. Both are true. Exactly how the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity coexist, I I, I don't know. My little pea brain is too small to comprehend that. But he, in his vast sovereignty and love, does both. And I think when we understand the free will of man, some people approach the free will of of humanity and they say, no, 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 it's not free. Because if we call it free, then somehow we do damage to the sovereignty of God. Not at all. We enhance and magnify the sovereignty of God by acknowledging that he, in his sovereignty, can use free agents and still be sovereign and still chosen yet free. We'll understand a bit more of that when we get to heaven. But this side of heaven, I think it is best to simply declare both truths, that we are chosen, and yet we have volition or free will at the same time. The chosen ones are the portion of Israel who seek God. They're the portion of Israel who seek Yahweh. What we're observing here is that the three descriptors, offspring from Jacob, my chosen ones, Yahweh's chosen ones, and Yahweh's servants, they're all interconnected because offspring from Jacob and my chosen ones are the same group. They're synonymous. And they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the genealogical descendants, the the physical descendants. They're Jews who have chosen to seek Yahweh, and therefore Yahweh calls them his servants. That's what this phrase, my servants, is referring to. But many, I'm sad to say, many in Israel reject Yahweh. It was that way in Isaiah's day, and is that that way today. Look at verse 11. But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. He's talking about a group who forsake pursuing Yahweh. And the default always, always, when you forsake God, the default always is that you seek other gods. There's Only two options. When you don't pursue the living God, you automatically pursue fake gods because he's hardwired us. He's designed us to pursue him. And so if we don't pursue God, then we're going to chase something else. There's just no other way. We're hardwired to pursue God, and if we reject him, then we'll find some cheap counterfeit substitute, false gods. Here they find false gods. You see how the names destiny and fate are capitalized, as we saw in the introduction. It's a capital D. It's a capital F. These are actual false gods. Fortune is the false god. Literally in the Hebrew, it doesn't say fortune. It says gad. It's the name of a god, a god of luck. And destiny says meni. That's the name of a god named meni. It's the god of fate. These are false gods. 
that they worshipped. They were so dumb. They're so dumb, they worship those gods. We don't do that, do we? We don't worship fate and fortune. Nah. That's why someone says, good luck. That's why when you buy a ticket on an airplane, you're not going to find a seat on row 13. That's why when someone goes to lease a floor in a 30-foot tall building, there's no lease for floor 13. There isn't a floor 13. There's not a row 13 on the airplane. Why? Because the airlines know, eh, no one's going to want to buy a seat on, floor thir- on row 13. So we'll just go from 11, from 12 to 14. We'll skip it. That's why the buildings know, the commercial real estate agents know, just don't have a floor 13 because no one's going to lease that floor. No one's going to pay you a a gajillion dollars in downtown Houston to lease floor 13. Just skip it. Just go from floor 12 to floor 14. That is a very common practice because we live by our false gods. We fear bad luck because bad luck is a god to us. And in reality, there's just demonic forces behind those things. Were they dumb there by worshiping false gods of fate and destiny? Of of fate and fortune? Yes. And so are we. Because sin makes you really dumb. It's just a reality. So before we get too high on our high horse, we should look in the mirror ourselves and confess our own sins. God is entirely intolerant of rejection of him. Look at verse 12. I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Well, that's intriguing. There's our word again. Bahar. Chose. This doesn't say that God chose. This says that they chose. The chosen ones, God has chosen ones, and they are the ones who choose not the way that God hates, but the way that God delights. Because both exist, the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity. God chooses and we choose. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Always. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Do we have the right to choose? Yes, we do. And we see it here by God describing these who choose against him. The reason they're not God's chosen ones, Yahweh's chosen ones, is because in their own free will, in their own volition, they choose to ignore Yahweh's word. That's why it says, I called. That's why it says, I spoke. And you didn't listen. You didn't respond. There are consequences always for ignoring for being bored with the word of God. Of their own volition, they chose other gods, which is the default when you refuse to choose the God who is. So Yahweh destines them for destruction. The beginning of verse 12 is a wordplay in the English. Right? They set a table 
for their gods. They set a table for fortune and mixed wine for destiny. It's as if they're offering to the false gods of Gad and Mani. So in the same way there's a word play in English, you offered mixed wine to destiny, and then, that's in verse 11, and then in verse 12, I will destine you, I, Yahweh, will destine you for the sword. In the same way there's a word play in English, there's the same word play in the Hebrew with the word meni. God is saying, you want to worship the God of destiny? In verse 11, then I will give you a destiny that matches your false God. I will destine you for the sword and for the slaughter. I believe this is a reference to Daniel's 70th week, more specifically the last part, the last half of Daniel's 70th week that he prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. It's what Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah 30 verse 7 as Jacob's trouble, Jacob's distress, when the Jewish race will suffer extreme, extreme persecution, extreme judgment. The free will of free agents, the devil, unbelievers, will persecute Israel. And yet God, in his judgment, in his sovereignty, will use that, those free, the, the, the decisions of those free agents for his purposes to discipline his people. Is God responsible for the evil that will be inflicted on the Jewish race in the last three and a half years? God doesn't cause the sin. God doesn't cause the, the evil that will be inflicted. But God is sovereign, and God punishes them in the same way that God used the Babylonians to destroy the southern kingdom. God doesn't condone sin, but somehow, some way, God, who maintains his holiness without compromising his righteousness, he uses the sin of sinful agents, like the devil or unbelievers, for his glory. This is a God indeed. This is a God who must be worshipped, who can use sin without compromising with sin, and yet, Still use it to praise Him. What is the, what is the psalmist said? The, the wrath of man will praise you. And so, this is a reference to the judgment that will come upon Israel in what is described as the great tribulation. The tribulation is the seven years, but the great tribulation is the last three and a half years. Jesus used the phrase great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years. And I think this is what is being referred to when God says in verse 12, that they will bow down to the slaughter and they will be destined for the sword. The text may even be referring to eternal damnation, which is the destiny of all unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. Keep reading verse 13. Therefore says the Lord God. As you've heard a thousand times before, when you see a therefore, you ask yourself, what is it there for? What's this therefore there for? It's there because of what has been said before, obviously. But it's there in light of the different decisions that these groups are making. God's chosen ones seek Him. And the rebels who choose other gods, who choose that which, is, which God does not delight in, those are the ones who are subject to His 
judgment. Those are the ones who forsake him. Therefore, in light of these two different groups, those who submit to him, those who mock him, in light of that, God has something to say. Right? You see this phrase here at the beginning of verse 13. It says, the Lord God. In the Hebrew, that's Adonai Yahweh. God is in initial caps. Or the first letter of, of God is capitalized, and the next O and the next D are capitalized. I think actually that's not initial caps, that's small caps. The first cap, the first letter of G is capitalized, and the O and the D are also capitalized, but smaller capitalization. Is it that way in your in your text? We've, we've studied this construction before. This is the construction of Adonai Yahweh. But because the, the Jews, after the Babylonian conquest, stopped pronouncing the name of Yahweh, the name yod He vav He, the sacred tetragrammaton, the four letters, because they stopped pronouncing it after the Babylonian conquest, we followed that tradition. Wrongly, I submit. Wrongly. Moses pronounced Yahweh. David pronounced Yahweh. Isaiah pronounced Yahweh. Jeremiah. Gideon. Deborah. They pronounced Yahweh. But what happened was, after the Babylonian conquest, when they came back and they knew that they had been destroyed because of their idolatry, because they got into all these gods of their neighbors, Baal and the Ashtaroth and, and all of those fake gods, and they sacrificed their babies in the fire. They were so idolatrous. The Jews I'm talking about. Because of that, then they came to not even speak the name of God. And they said, well, we're not going to violate the commandment to, to not take the Lord's name in vain. What's the best way to not violate it? We're not even going to say it. Or we're going to disrespect him in other ways. But we're not even going to say his name. And so now, when, when a Jewish person writes God, it'll be G space D. And they won't even speak the name Yahweh. They'll say Adonai. Some, some people, we used to think that it was pronounced Jehovah. Because what they did is, is the, the, the scribes, when they would get to the four letters, yod he vav he, they would put the vowel points of Adonai. And so when you, when you pronounce the vowel points of Adonai with those four letters, the sacred, sacred tetragrammaton, it sounds like Yehovah. But most scholars today would say, it's probably not pronounced Yehovah. It's probably pronounced Yahweh. But we have to say probably because they stopped pronouncing it. So we have to come to a conclusion. And so when you see the Lord God, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It says Adonai Yahweh. Adonai means Lord, yes, but you should, you should think of it as Sovereign Yahweh. When you get to the formula, Lord God, Sovereign Yahweh, the writers in the Hebrew Scriptures use that title, Lord God. Adonai, Adonai Yahweh, because they're about to explain some incredible proclamation of God. In this case, we're about to get a proclamation of judgment from God. A serious proclamation of, the, of and from the sovereign God of Israel. Keep reading in verse 13. 
Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. This is the verdict from the high court of heaven. This is the verdict from the Yahweh who is sovereign, whose will cannot be thwarted. Blessing for some, but ruthless punishment for others. You see, there's a stark contrast between these two groups, between the servants of Yahweh, those who sought Him by their own choice. Their destiny is celebration and multifold blessings. Physical blessings, spiritual blessings. That's why they're described here as being at a banquet with eating and drinking. That's physical blessings. And then there's blessings of the inner self. You see this language, a glad heart that shouts joyfully. God is not a sourpuss, right? The, the self-righteous legalists somehow taught some Christians that God comes along with a big sour face and we Christians need to be very dour and sour. That's not God. The first public miracle that you see of Jesus in the book of John, as we have studied, is a party. He's making wine. And it wasn't grape juice. It was wine. Because the head waiter says, Wow, you saved the best wine for last. Which is not the tradition. Right? The tradition is you save the crummy wine for, for last because people are, you know, their taste buds are a little dull by then. But the head waiter says, Wow, you saved the best wine for last. Because God is a God of celebration. And the eternal kingdom is often pictured as a banquet. Isaiah has taught us this in the book. Isaiah 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, another, another title of the sovereignty of God. This is what the sovereign God will effect, will do. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. For all peoples, that's believing Jews and believing Gentiles, on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Wine was always a description of the blessings of God. Not drunkenness. Drunkenness is a serious sin. Wine. And that's why you see this, this picture here of celebration for God's chosen ones, the ones who choose Him. But the other group is the group who forsakes him. And their destiny is suffering. Multifold punishment. Both physical and spiritual. In the same way that the servants of Yahweh. That the chosen ones. That those who seek him. Us. Believing Jews. Believing Gentiles. In the same way that they have multifold physical and spiritual blessings forever. Those who reject Yahweh, those who reject the God of Israel, whether they be unbelieving Jews or unbelieving Gentiles, will suffer physical and spiritual punishment forever. Multifold punishment. That's why you see these words of hardship for them, like hunger and thirst. And then you see these words 
of spiritual suffering that they will have shame and they'll be crying out and wailing and their name will be associated with the cursing of God. Look at verse 15. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. And there's the formula again. And the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, will slay you. Those who choose against the sovereign Yahweh will be slaughtered and their name will be associated with judgment and cursing. You'll say that name and and there will be a cringe. Ah! Because that name will be associated with the judgment of God. Keep reading in verse 15. But my servants will be called by another name. A new name means a new character. A new name means a new reputation. A new name means a new order of things. Earlier in the book, the prophet spoke of the new name that God would give the Jews. Isaiah 62, verse 2. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. That's the Jews. Jesus says that church-age believers, Gentiles, and Jews. Most of the church are believing Gentiles, but there are believing Jews in the church also, of course. But Jesus says the church-age believers will also be given a new name by God. Revelation 2, 17, to him who overcomes, we know from 1 John 5, 5, that the overcomer is the one who believes in Christ. To him who overcomes, To Kim, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. In fact, the new name that we receive will be the name of God himself. Jesus says this in Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Do you understand that forever you will be known by a name of God that no one even knows today? It's not going to be Yahweh. It's not going to be Jesus. It's not going to be Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. It's not going to be God. It's not going to be a name that we know. It will be a name for God that no one even knows today. It will be a name for God that has never entered the mouth of sinful man. It will be a name for God that has never been used as an expletive by humanity. This is how you will be known forever by His name. Receiving the name of God means that you will be identified by Him, with Him, forever. You will be owned by him forever because he has bought you with his blood. And you will be cared for and provided by him. For You will be cared for by him and provided for by him, which is to say you will be blessed by him forever. Look at verse 16. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Yahweh's servants will be blessed by him in his kingdom 
first for a thousand years on this planet, and then for a thousand times a thousand times a thousand times a thousand ad infinitum in his eternal kingdom, in the new planet, the new heavens, and the new earth. This kingdom blessing is assured because Yahweh is the God of truth who cannot fail to perform his promises. It's not that God doesn't perform his promises. It's that God is unable to, per- to fail to perform his promises because he's righteous. He's holy. He can't not deliver on his promise of salvation and deliverance. For example, in the kingdom, no one will swear. In other words, no one will give an oath by a false god. No one's going to say, good luck. No one's going to worship the god of luck. Because in the kingdom, the god of luck, the god of fortune, the god of fate, the god of money, the god of sex, the god of power, the god of leisure, the god of entertainments, all those gods will be proven to be the pretenders that they are. So no one will give an oath based on a false god. They will give an oath. That's what's being described here by swearing. They will give an oath according to the true God. And all of this will come because of the very last phrase of verse 16. Look at that phrase. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. One of the most beautiful promises in the Scripture. It's the beautiful promise that God says, I will remember your sins no more. They're forgotten. It's not that God forgets things. It's that God speaks of them no more. David describes this beautifully in Psalm 103, verse 11, where he says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Do you remember it? And the son receives the inheritance from his father, and he squanders it on whores. That's what it says, on prostitutes. He wastes it, and he finds himself living like an animal, in the pig pen. Literally, he's among the pens. A horrible image for a Jew. He's among the pigs, feeding the pigs, eating the food that the pigs eat. And so in that moment, he realizes, what have I done? I'm going to go to my father and tell him I did wrong. And he rehearses what he's going to say. I've done wrong. He rehearses it. And so then he gets up, he walks back home barefoot, all nasty, and his father sees him from a distance. His father girds up his loins, right, because they have a tunic, they got to kind of tie that up, and his father, in a very undistinguished fashion, because he's a, he's a wealthy, powerful man, he runs because he's been looking for his son. And his son he meets his son and he hugs him and he kisses him and his son starts, starts saying what he rehearsed because he's rehearsed it so much about how he's done wrong and the father, before he can finish, summons the servants to kill the calf and to start the party. It's as if the father says, shh, we will speak of these things no more. 
because my son was dead. And now he lives. This is what is described in our passage today. Our sins that plague us, your weaknesses, you know what they are. You don't need to share them with me. God knows what they are. No more. They're gone. They're forgotten in God's eyes. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. This is the imagery for those who seek Him, His chosen ones, who will enjoy His celebration forever. That's what that loud rejoicing is. It's laughter. That's what the kingdom is going to be. Laughter. Loud laughter for His chosen ones. This is what the prophet prophesies about here. What God delivers is the prophecy to the prophet Isaiah that we may be edified by it and reminded in a world that is wicked, in a world that is falling apart. Take heart by the message that soon, soon, your God will make all things right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you're a God who delivers. You're a God who loves us. You're a God who provides for us. You're a God who gives us a destiny that is indescribable, full of joy. We praise you for these things. We ask that you give us the words to speak to our unbelieving friends that they too may join you in your eternal kingdom by faith. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings, Jesus Christ himself,